Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go back and go to hell. I'm not alone. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. The pretty one, look. Cops in the road. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's still coming down with this and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, 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 whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount. In June 1998, the residents of the seaside city of Wollongong were shocked and horrified by the decapitation murder of local shopkeeper David O'Hearn. Two weeks later, another brutal mutilation murder was committed, that of former Lord Mayor and alleged pedophile Frank Arkell. Rumours of Satanism, the occult, gay hate murder squads and pedophile rings swirled about the city as police struggled to find any real leads. But despite their best efforts, three murders would be committed before those responsible were brought to justice. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saravan. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Being a comedy true crime podcast means that we use dark humour as a means to tell horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their families. If you think humour has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Hey Barney, uh, you know how we're always talking about nasty stuff on this podcast? Well, yeah, but the dismemberment in this case is so extreme it warrants a warning. Yeah, it certainly does. It's pretty graphic. Now, we're recording remotely for the first time today, practising our social distancing. So apologies if our sound quality isn't up to its normal level, but this is just how it's got to be. Oh, it's a crazy world. It really is. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We've had a few new ones join our fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to loads of other episodes, including our grungy and an aristocratic first season and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes. As well as exclusive, monthly, uncensored, patron-only episodes where we really let fly. Levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. And of course, you're automatically entered into the draw for our monthly giveaways. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. The Van Creville family lived in Wollongong, which is a large seaside city that lies on the narrow coastal strip between Illawarra Escarpment and the Pacific Ocean south of Sydney. Wollongong, which locals refer to as the Gong, has a population of around 300,000, making it the third largest city in New South Wales after Sydney and Newcastle and the 10th largest city in Australia. Meaning sewer in its local indigenous dialect, Wollongong is a blue-collar town, known for its port activity and long history of coal mining and heavy industry. 
Naming a city an Indigenous word for sewer is a bold choice. Yeah, Tara, it doesn't really represent the residents in a flattering way. Nah, it seems to imply they're all a bunch of shits. Well, yeah. The gong has been churning out sports stars for decades. It is also responsible for the infamous Wolf Creek actor John Jarrett. And a lot of the cast of Home and Away. Oh, yeah. Jack and Elizabeth Van Crevel had been calling the gong home for some time. In early 1974, they completed building their dream home in Albion Park after living in a garage for months while Jack, who was a builder, constructed it. On April 24, 1979, the Van Crevels welcomed their first child into the world. Jack and Elizabeth named the boy Mark. The following year, on August 21, 1980, their daughter was born, whom they named Belinda. But Jack and Elizabeth's marriage was in trouble. They just weren't getting along, Tara. They would argue about all sorts of things. Whose turn it was to do the dishes, which were tastier, sausages or pancakes, what company made the softest toilet paper, and who was Mark's real father, with Elizabeth teasing Jack constantly that Mark was not his child. Um, that sounds more like gaslighting than teasing to me. Yeah, it's not good, is it? No, that's really not good. In 1982, the couple would head to Splitsville, population them. Elizabeth cracked the shits with Jack and took her sausages and the kids and buggered off, leaving Jack and Wollongong in her angry, sausageless wake. <laughs> Mark was 18 months old and Belinda was just eight weeks. Elizabeth returned a few weeks later, only to leave with the kids again after two days. Elizabeth claimed she lived out of her car at this time and not surprisingly, it was a bit tight for three of them, which is why she returned the children to Jack. Jack tells a different version of the story altogether. He said Elizabeth was living with friends and getting on the piss, and that one day her mother called him to come and collect the children as she couldn't handle them. When Jack arrived, apparently Elizabeth threw Mark at Jack's feet saying, you can have that one, but you're not getting her. Eventually Jack and Elizabeth were given joint custody of the children, but Jack, for some reason, became a sole parent from when Mark was three and Belinda was two. Elizabeth didn't really stay in touch with her children, rarely seeing Mark and Belinda after this. Jack would try to keep in contact, but Elizabeth made it hard, moving around a lot and not returning phone calls. When irregular visits with the children were organised, Belinda would see her mother, but Mark said, yeah, nah, and refused to see her, and Jack didn't make him. If Elizabeth dropped in, Mark scampered away and locked himself in his room. Jack was a self-employed builder and whilst working got babysitters to look after the kids but for some reason none of them lasted very long at the job. Jack did alright for money and had managed to squirrel a bit away so he decided he'd look after the children full time until they were both of school age. All seemed to go well for a while but Jack wasn't quite ready for the rambunctious antics of Belinda and Mark full time. He became a nervous wreck and fell apart. The kids spent a couple of weeks with a foster family, allowing Jack to recover and regroup. Belinda later alleged that during their time in foster care, her brother Mark was made to sleep in a chicken coop. Oh. Though that might be bullshit, Tara, as there are no chickens from that time alive to corroborate this story. Around the time Belinda started primary school, Jack got reacquainted with an old friend from high school named Anne. She and her husband, Peter Stanford, lived close by and had two boys and a girl around the same age as Belinda and Mark. It would be an enduring friendship, with Anne and Peter helping Jack out with his children regularly. Belinda was Daddy's little girl and got a lot of attention from her father. In the book Bound by Blood, The Wollongong Murders, author John Souter Linton describes primary school aged Belinda as plump with red hair and freckles, always hugging her father. It has been said that Jack favoured his daughter over his son Mark. Mark grew up stubborn and was creepy quiet most of the time, but threw hissy fits if he didn't get his way. Mark and his father, Jack, did not get along. They both had volatile tempers and argued frequently. Whose turn was it to do the dishes? Which are tastier, sausages or pancakes? Who makes the softest toilet paper? The arguments were never-ending. Jack was disappointed to learn from Mark's primary school teachers that Mark experienced learning difficulties and had to attend a special needs school, the nearby Albion Park Rail Primary School. 
The school had a special program for kids with learning difficulties. Under their tutelage, Mark was able to progress academically to the point that he could return to his old school with Belinda. Shit was still hard at home though, with Jack and Mark not having the ideal father-son relationship. Jack told friends, Mark frustrates the living hell out of me. What can I do? Jack always blamed himself for his relationship problems with Mark. Wanting to be a better parent, he enrolled in evening parenting skills classes. Meanwhile, in primary school, Mark was solidifying his reputation as a bully. He quite enjoyed punching the shit out of other, much smaller kids. Yes, he got a lot of job satisfaction from that. Well, it's important to, uh, you know... I do what you love and you won't work a day in your life. That's right. Jack's dreams of being a great father were not exactly coming true, Tara. He dreaded parents of the children Mark bullied knocking on the door complaining that his son was whacking their children and stealing their lunch money. Oh, Jack probably wanted a refund from those parenting skills classes he took, huh? <laughs> That's right. In his final year in primary school, Mark got in trouble for vandalising school property. Shortly afterwards, he cracked the shits big time and pushed a lady teacher down a flight of stairs, possibly after another pancake-slash-sausage argument. Oh, there's no need for violence, even when in a heated argument about such an important topic. At home, Belinda had shits to crack too. Due to archaic gender stereotypes, she found herself doing much of the housework and cooking. Much like myself. (laughs) Cooking? Well, for the children, but I hardly ever see you cook for adults unless it's sausages, right? I do like to cook sausages. Yes, you do. That's because you like to eat sausages. I know where you, you know, stand on this whole sausage pancake thing. Well, they are tastier, I've got to tell you. <laughs> I suppose so. At high school, Mark met a boy named Keith Schreiber, and they became BFFs. BFF standing for Bastard Freaky Friends. They were freaky bastards as well as friends. Mark's dad, Jack, thought Keith was a total dickhole and a bad influence on Mark. Keith's folks thought Mark was the dickhole and a bad influence on their son. As it turned out, Tara, they were both right. Yep. Due to constant disciplinary disputes, Keith was eventually asked to leave Albion Park High School and went to work as a fish gutter in Nowra. Mark and Keith continued to hang out and got into capers, hijinks and mischief. It was during this time they developed a fascination with Satanism, serial killers, death and making souffles. I'm pretty sure that last bit isn't true. It's, well, Tara, the knights would charge by as they chatted about how best to torture and kill people and who could bake the fluffiest, most beautiful and light souffle. <laughs> okay, sure, sounds legit. For shits and giggles, Mark cut satanic symbols into his arms using knives or other sharp objects. Probably a compass. Oh, yeah, a compass. You know, you remember doing that at school? Well, I mean, I didn't... compass, the end of a compass? I didn't cut, like, pentagrams into my arm with a compass at school, no. Yeah. But I do remember compasses. You just wrote Nick Kershaw or something like that. Oh, no, River Phoenix, and then you kiss your arm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay, you're not far from the truth there. This would earn him the nickname Satan at high school. Do you think Satan was like, oh, for fuck's sake, leave me out of this? I think he definitely said that. (laughs) Keith and Mark were bullies and gave out more than their fair share of wet willies, atomic wedgies and throwing kids into bins. They also passed out more than a few Hertz donuts, smell the cheese and royal flushes. Ironically enough, both would later claim they had been victims of bullying themselves. I guess you could be a bully who was also bullied. Oh, sure. There's like tiers of bullies, you know? Yeah. It's like a, a pyramid scheme. I think they were probably just making excuses for their behaviour. Yeah. The pair were well known to local shopkeepers and railway staff as rabble-rousers who would pinch anything that wasn't nailed down. Mark and Keith would tell tales of tossing people off trains. Not, not like wanking them, but like literally throwing them off trains. Yeah, not tossing them off. N- on a train, no. Yeah, nah. Yeah, nah. Mark told a friend that one day on a train trip he cut his wrist and had two girls suck his blood. Oh, God, I think I'd rather wank someone on a train than do that. With everything going on at home, Belinda's attendance in high school was consequently pretty shitty. She lost weight, dyed her red hair jet black and became a surly, pasty teenage goth. Ah, those were the days. Indeed. She completed her Year 10 certificate and left high school, but never got a job. Well, okay. Actually, she did have a job for half a day. She was pushing poultry at Leonard's Chickens in Wollongong before she walked out saying the place was full of knobs. 
Now, perhaps it was indeed full of knobs, or maybe she walked off the job because by then Belinda had discovered boys, booze and amphetamines. Her brother, Mark Van Crevel, had turned his surliness up to 11 too, telling high school to fuck off and dropping out. Though later he did secure employment as a dishwasher at a Planet Hollywood restaurant in inner city Sydney. Oh, I wonder if he got to wash a dish that Jean-Claude Van Damme had used. Glamorous. On evenings and weekends, Mark would hide out in his room with his bastard freaky friend Keith. They would listen to death metal, mainly Cannibal Corpse, or watch horror movies that they'd rented from the local video store. They would also play with Mark's large collection of very sharp and very pointy knives. I don't know, man. Like, aside from Stabby Stabby, what games can a person play with knives? Well, you can play catch. <laughs> well, I guess you can, but you shouldn't. You know that bishop thing from Aliens? Where you, like, you know, he does that thing fingers. between his fingers? Yeah, yeah. Or that circus thing with the spinning wheel. You throw the knives. You tie someone to a spinning wheel and you throw the knives. Oh, okay. All right. You raise yeah, a yeah. good point. Yeah. Fearing for his son's future, on more than one occasion, Mark's dad Jack told Keith to fuck off and never come back. But it didn't work. Mark always found a way to hang out with his BFFF Keith. The extra F is for fuckwit. When Belinda was 17 years old, she gave birth to a baby girl whom she named Tia. Jack doted on his granddaughter and loved her to bits. Jack was pleased when Mark pursued an interest in taekwondo and regularly attended classes. But Mark's first love was Satanism, which he shared with his BFFF Keith Schreiber. Keith, like Mark and Belinda, grew up in Wollongong, and just like the Van Crevel siblings, his life was going pretty good until his parents divorced when he was 12 years old. Some say this fucked him up, and like a lot of kids who go through this, for no rational reason, he blamed himself. Keith's aunt would later tell a court that his self-esteem, which had been pretty low from a very young age, deteriorated after the split. Keith would often refer to himself as being stupid and a loser. Both his parents remarried, but he was not welcomed by either of their new partners, possibly because he was, well, kind of stupid and a bit of a loser. Mark and Belinda Van Crevel and Keith Schreiber were very angry at the world, but no one could ever imagine just how angry they were. On the morning of Saturday, June 13th, 1998, in Dapto, just a quick 20-minute drive from Wollongong, residents were wondering why their local corner shop was not open yet. Newspapers had been delivered and still lay on the front door, waiting to be brought inside the store. The old-school Aussie milk bar was owned and run by 60-year-old David O'Hearn. Relatives who were concerned that he had not opened his store at the usual hour went to his house and discovered a horrific scene. It would later be described in court as gruesome in the extreme. Yeah, look, if you're squeamish about mutilation of fellow humans, you might want to block your ears for this bit and another bit that comes later. Yeah, lots of the bits. Yeah, you, just the whole thing, really. Yeah. You probably should just take some, take an aspirin and go and have a lie down. Yeah, come back for Aussie as. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe true crime nerd time too. David O'Hearn was found lying on his back in the living room of his house. He had been decapitated. His severed hand lay on the sofa and he had been disemboweled with his insides placed on a silver tray next to his body. A hammer had been inserted into his anus. His penis had been mutilated. On a wall was a pentagram with the word Satan under it. On an opposite wall was painted an inverted cross. The word Satan was also scrawled on an ornate mirror. All had been drawn in David O'Hearn's blood using his severed hand as a paintbrush. On the breakfast bar in the kitchen, a number of sections of his intestines had been laid out. Around O'Hearn's body lay four knives, a metal hacksaw, a corkscrew and a razor blade. All were covered in blood. Forensic pathologist Dr Alan Carla would later establish these tools were used to mutilate his body after death. The corkscrew had been used on his penis. O'Hearn, who was homosexual, was naked from the waist down, with his pants around his ankles. This made police suspect his murder may have been a gay hate crime. Also found next to the body was a blood-stained crystal wine decanter. 
This was later confirmed to be the murder weapon. Impact blood splatters revealed that O'Hearn was prone on the floor when bludgeoned with the decanter. O'Hearn's head was found lying in the sink which was partially filled with water. One eye had been gouged out. Also on the sink were two blood-soaked fingerless gloves turned inside out. Crime scene detective Sergeant Barry Doherty would later say it was like nothing I have ever seen before. David O'Hearn's house had been ransacked, but police didn't believe this was a simple robbery as the injuries O'Hearn had received were way too brutal. The attack showed a lot of rage, and due to the amount of overkill, they figured it might have been personal. The fact that there was no sign of forced entry meant it was possible that O'Hearn knew his attacker. Crowds gathered outside David O'Hearn's property, unsure what all the police presence meant. Amongst the rubberneckers was Mark Van Crevel. He asked a neighbour, what's going on? The neighbour said, someone's been murdered. Mark replied, oh, and then went home. A special 10-man strike force was assembled, codenamed Lima, led by Inspector Peter Woods. Detectives started off their investigation by focusing on victimology. Who was David O'Hearn? O'Hearn's sister Anne Barron told police that her brother was a quiet, compassionate man who lived alone and kept mostly to himself. He visited family members regularly and had good relations with everyone he knew. He'd run the corner shop for two years and was well-liked in the community, even extending credit to locals in need. Anne told the TV show Forensic Investigators, We didn't know anyone who could hate him that much. He just wasn't somebody you could hate. Although David had grown up in Wollongong, he spent much of his life working in Tasmania, only returning four years earlier to retire and run the corner shop. David had moved back to the gong to spend time with his six brothers and sisters, his nieces and nephews, and his ageing mother, Marion. Anne Barron confirmed with detectives that her brother was indeed gay, but not in a way that she saw was outwardly obvious. Anne said that he wasn't a party boy and had only been in three relationships. After learning he had no enemies and didn't lead a high-risk lifestyle, Police suspected that O'Hearn's murder was committed by a stranger after all. Tracing his last known movements, detectives discovered O'Hearn had closed his shop at the regular time of 5pm. In his car, a couple of bags of groceries were found. A receipt at the bottom of one of the bags revealed O'Hearn had purchased the goods at a local Dapto supermarket at 5.35pm. This was confirmed by supermarket CCTV footage. A witness who knew him also came forward to state that she'd seen O'Hearn coming out of the supermarket and had said hello to him. O'Hearn's car was parked in his garage and still had the bags of shopping in it, including perishables like meat, milk and vegetables. This indicated to police that he met his attacker shortly after parking his car. Forensic pathologist Dr Alan Keller established that the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head caused by a blunt object and all blows had come from behind and were most likely from the crystal decanter. One latent fingerprint was lifted from the lid of the decanter. The print was run through police criminal databases but unfortunately there was no match. The tools used to mutilate O'Hearn's body were also checked for fingerprints, but nothing usable was found, though detectives did establish where the tools had come from. The four knives, metal hacksaw, corkscrew and a razor blade were from O'Hearn's own kitchen. Police found similar tools in a high cupboard above the fridge. The height of the cupboard showed police that they were probably dealing with a perpetrator who was at least six feet tall. Next, detectives looked into the bizarre satanic drawings painted in O'Hearn's own blood. It was time to round up the usual satanic suspects. The problem was that they didn't have any. With Alistair Crowley not being in the Wollongong phone book, they began a canvas around the neighbourhood surrounding David O'Hearn's house and a name kept coming up. Christian Bale? I mean, come on, he did thank Satan in his acceptance speech at the Golden Globes the year he won Best Actor for Vice. Well, that's right. 
Satanists were thrilled. Yeah, I'm sure they were. The Church Church of Satan tweeted, To us, Satan is a symbol of pride, liberty, and individualism, and it serves as an external metaphorical projection of our highest personal potential. Oh, once more, Satan rolled his eyes and went, Leave me out of this. No, it wasn't Christian Bale, Tara. The name that kept coming up was 19-year-old Keith Schreiber. Police learned that Keith, besides having a stupid inverted mohawk haircut that made him look like a cross between a jarhead and a monk, really dug the occult and satanic worship. He also just lived a few houses down the road from David O'Hearn. Detectives paid Keith a visit, but were disappointed he wasn't home. The door was answered by his flatmate, Mark Van Crevel, who invited detectives in. The cheeky cops popped their heads into Keith Schreiber's room and discovered some disturbing sketches of headless bodies, disembowelment and stabbing murders, eerily similar to what had been done to David O'Hearn. Cops managed to track down Keith Schreiber at his workplace at a fish market where he worked as a fish gutter. Well, that's a stabby, stabby job. When quizzed about the sketches they found in his room, Keith explained that those were just copied from CD covers of his favourite band, Cannibal Corpse. When asked of his whereabouts on the night of David O'Hearn's murder, Keith told detectives he'd been working and had stayed the night at his boss's as they had an early start the next day at the fish market. Keith's employer confirmed his alibi. Frustrated they had lost their best suspect, detectives were stumped. But there was no time for head-scratching, as there had been another murder. A murder very similar and just as gruesome as a mutilation killing of David O'Hearn. We'll be back with more of the Van Crevel evil after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, Barney. What time is it? It's True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Leah Heinrich. Hey, Leah. And she writes, Hi, Tara and Barney, I did a True Crime Nerd Time for you. On the podcast Real Crime Profile. Oh. And she actually recorded it. Oh, that's fantastic. We love it when people do that. Mm. So let's listen. Hi, Tara and Barney. It's Leah here. I'm going to do you a true crime nerd time. And it's about a podcast I found called Real Crime Profile. I love this podcast. I'm so glad I found it. It's a bloody rip snorter. So the hosts are Jim Clemente, retired FBI supervisory special agent slash profiler. Laura Richards, who's a criminal behavioural analyst, former New Scotland Yard, and Lisa Zambetti, who's the casting director for CBS's Criminal Minds. Some of the cases they've covered include Lynette Dawson, Madeleine McCann, Jeffrey Epstein, and Bill Cosby. RCP covers a lot of well-known cases and they usually use a documentary or a podcast or TV show as the basis for their coverage. And they usually do a series of episodes on each case. Epstein, I think, went for like 12 eps. It was amazing. So they take a deep dive into the cases and really get stuck into analysing the behaviour behind the criminals. It's absolutely fascinating because the hosts really know their stuff. They all really get worked up and don't hold back when talking about the abominable behaviour of the criminals, but I really love how angry Jim gets when he talks about some of the things that happen in this world. He says, outrageous, a lot. You can just picture his face going red and steam coming out of his ears, and I especially like the way he absolutely caned Epstein during that series. 
I became a huge fangirl of his when I realised how much of a victim's advocate he is. And Laura is an expert in coercive control and has also established victim's advocacy groups in the UK and elsewhere. Uh, a few months back, I actually face-stalked Jim and I sent him a friend request. I may have had a few wines that night and he actually accepted, which I was very excited about. So I highly recommend Real Crime Profile, especially if you love the analysis of criminal behaviour. So give it a shot, fam bam. Thanks. See ya. The fact is that defendants use that statute of limitations and the fact that there's delayed disclosure to get away with crimes, serial crimes. In Cosby's case, for five decades. Five decades. It's unbelievable. It's outrageous. Well, thanks, Leah. That podcast is Real Crime Profile, the details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to submit a true crime nerd time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to contribute. Times are tough for a lot of people at the moment, like particularly at the moment. Life is busy and unfortunately, it can be complicated. Now, we're both big believers in therapy, but finding the time to go can be a problem when you can't leave the house. (laughs) is a bit of an issue. If you have something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you and you don't even have to leave your house. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counsellors who are specialised in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, loneliness, self-esteem and more. You can connect with a professional counsellor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential and it's very convenient. You can do it from any room in your house. I don't recommend the toilet though. Sometimes the toilet does have good acoustics. I don't know. It's a bit echoey. I mean, you know, didn't we try setting up my remote uh, podcasting setup from the toilet earlier and it was just a bit echoey. Well, yeah, those those plopping sounds were really clipping the mic, weren't they? Well, I mean, you were the one making them, so you tell me. (laughs) And you're in your lounge room. I'm still confused by that. You can now get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions plus chat and text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counsellor, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. It's a service that is available worldwide and you could be communicating with a counsellor in under 24 hours. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option and as a Bloody Murder listener, you get 10% off your first month with the discount code Bloody Murder. So why not get started today? I can't think of a reason. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. Simply fill out the questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counsellor that really suits you. That's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. With the discount code bloody murder, one word. Hi, I'm Jamie, host of Murderish, a true crime podcast that provides a 3D look at gripping murder cases from beginning to end. You'll get to know the victims and perpetrators how their worlds collided, and what went down during trial. I also share some of my own personal experiences, like the time a stranger came into my bedroom at night. Yeah, that really happened. And I walk you through all the details of that terrifying night. Have you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall during a murder trial? You'll get that opportunity on Murderish, as I share my experience being a jury foreman on a first-degree murder trial. Search Murderish in your favorite podcatcher app Hit subscribe and start binging. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. And now back to the Van Crevel evil. Just a kilometre away from the scene of David O'Hearn's brutal murder, and only two weeks later, 68-year-old former Wollongong mayor Frank Arkell was murdered. His blood-soaked body was found lying next to his bed. It appeared at first glance that he had been beaten severely about the head with a lamp. The broken lamp lay on the floor of his flat next to his body. Its cord wound around his neck. Arkell's cause of death was put down to a combination of blunt force trauma to the head and ligature strangulation. There were also over 40 mutilation injuries to Frank Arkell's body, which were inflicted after death. A large piece of wood was found embedded in his neck. Also used in the attack was a glass ashtray. 
Two tie pins had been inserted deeply into his face, one in his left cheek and one in his right eyeball. His genitals and anus were also mutilated. Detectives located a plastic lunchbox full of tie pins in one of his cupboards. This, along with a glass sliding door, which was the only entry to Arkell's flat, was sent to forensics for fingerprint analysis. Forensics were able to lift decent latent fingerprints off both the lunchbox and the door, but were unable to match them to anyone on the police's criminal databases, nor did they match the print obtained from David O'Hearn's murder scene. This didn't mean they had not come from the same person. It could be that they had just come from different fingers. That's true. The similarities between both murders was uncanny. Both men were killed with weapons found in the victims' homes. They were mutilated after death. Both murders were committed with a great deal of anger. And both victims were homosexual. The second victim, Frank Arkell, was well known to police. Known locally as Mr Wollongong, 62-year-old Frank Arkell had been Lord Mayor of the city from 1974 to 1991. He had also served as an independent member of the New South Wales Legislative Assembly representing Wollongong. To many residents, he was considered the city's saviour due to the work he'd done to improve development and employment rates in Wollongong. To others who knew his dark and vile secrets, including his fondness for young boys, he was a rock spider who deserved to rot in prison. In March 1996, the Wood Royal Commission began hearings into police protection of pedophile rings. Telexes and tapes which linked deceased former Lord Mayor Tony Bevan and others to an organised pedophile ring operating in Wollongong and Sydney during the 70s and 80s were made known, and a number of witnesses came forward. Not only did Arkell's name come up in the evidence, but so did his nickname. Bevan and his pedo associates called him Farkless Arkless. The Commission wanted to interview Frank Arkell about the allegations of child sexual abuse made against him and to see if he had been corrupting the police for protection. Arkell gave a statement to investigators claiming his innocence. Of being an accused pedophile, Arkell said, It's a terrible thing to be called that. It's the worst thing in the world. Worse than leprosy, I'm sure. He was called to speak at the commission, but his legal team presented medical certificates claiming that he was suffering from depression and too unwell to attend. The commission heard damning evidence from several men who claimed Frank had coerced them into having sex with him when they were teenagers, as young as 14. One alleged that an incident of abuse happened in a public toilet. Frank released a statement on August 21, 1996, denying the men's claims and saying... I have never had sexual contact with a male under 18 and never in a public toilet. Justice Wood found there was no evidence to link Frank Arkell to any corruption of the police force, so the allegations against him were passed on to the Child Protection Enforcement Agency. On May 1st, 1997, detectives arrested Frank Arkell and charged him with 29 child sex offences dating back between 1973 and 1984. These included 14 counts of indecent assault on males, 8 counts of sexual intercourse with a male without consent, 5 counts of buggery and 2 counts of using a stupefying drug to commit an indictable offence on 4 victims aged between 14 and 18. In February 1998, the four alleged victims spoke about their experiences with Arkell during a 5-day committal hearing. The first man to speak alleged he had sex with Arkell six times in 1984 as part of deceased former Lord Mayor Tony Bevan's child sex ring. He said that these incidents took place in a high-rise apartment and at units in Wollongong. The court dismissed 11 of the 12 charges that were laid in relation to his testimony. The second alleged victim said he had been drugged and raped by Frank Arkell in 1984. He'd been close with Arkell prior to this and had considered him a second father. The third man to speak, who happened to be serving a sentence for child sex offences at the time, told the court he had sex with Arkell in a public toilet in 1973 when he was 14 years old. There is so much wrong with that sentence. The last alleged victim stated that Arkell had picked him up walking along the street in May 1978 when he was 19. 
Instead of driving him home, he said he was driven to another property where it was alleged Arkell gave him a drug drink and then raped him. After hearing all the evidence, 24 of the charges were dismissed, and so was one of the alleged victims, the man serving time for child sex offences. The magistrate decided there was a sufficient case against Frank Arkell relating to four of the charges. Arkell was to face charges of unlawfully administering a stupefying drug and buggery to victims aged 17 and 18 at the time. The Director of Public Prosecution stated the charges did not constitute child sex offences, but they were serious and carried a penalty of up to 25 years jail. All of Frank's victims were interviewed by detectives, and although plenty of them had a motive to see Frank dead, all of them had airtight alibis. Although police could find no links between the two murdered men, the media went nuts and speculated that both of them were involved in child sex rings and were killed for revenge. David O'Hearn and Frank Arkell had never met, but television and newspapers reported that they were well acquainted. They also claimed that O'Hearn was an alleged pedophile too, although no allegations had ever been made against him. Yeah, that was some pretty shitty journalism and really hard for the O'Hearn family. Yeah, it was very, very defamatory. Yeah, it was very defamatory in David O'Hearn's case. Nevertheless, police were beginning to think that they may have a serial killer targeting middle-aged gay men in the Wollongong area. A pair of blood-soaked Nike tracksuit pants turned inside out were found at the Frank Arkell murder scene. Also found were a pair of blood-stained Colorado boots. Both items appeared to have been taken off in a hurry. These boots and pants were not the kind of thing that Arkell would wear. Also, Arkell wore size 7 shoes. The Colorado boots were size 9.5, so it seemed likely that these were the clothes of the killer. After an inventory of Arkell's closet, the police discovered that some of Arkell's clothes were missing too. So the killer left their blood-covered clothes at the scene and changed into some of Arkell's clothes. Yeah. The Colorado boots were tracked back to the manufacturers and distribution batch numbers were noted. Detectives tracked the boots to a Wollongong shoe shop. After sifting through their sales records for Colorado boots, they found six credit card slips. All the other pairs had been bought with cash. Time for the cops to put on their walking shoes and bang on some doors. Much to the detectives' disappointment, some of the shoe buyers answered their doors wearing their Colorado boots, whilst others fished them out of their closets. Frustrated cops were left with another dead end. Most likely the killer had paid cash for his Colorado kicks. The Nike tracksuit pants found in Arkell's bedroom also bore no fruit. Another tip came in from a neighbour of Frank Arkell's. He had seen a car leaving Arkell's driveway on the morning of the murder at 3am. The vehicle was a red Nissan Skyline. A similar car was found dumped and stripped in bushland near Mount Usley the next day. But the witness wasn't sure that it was the right car and had no other details to offer. Police were desperate as they didn't want this to be yet another dead end. As the investigation had hit a brick wall, a decision was made to hypnotise the witness. Police were hoping that he could remember the licence plate of the car that he'd seen, and although he couldn't, he was able to give a description of the driver. A sketch artist produced a composite picture based on the witness's statement. The photo set was released to media, but no one identified him. On Thursday, August 6th, 1998, two men looking like low-budget ninjas, armed with a samurai sword and a machete, robbed an Ampole service station in Albion Park. The two knuckleheads got away with a princely sum of $307 and a few packets of cigarettes, escaping on foot up the highway. The incident was captured on CCTV. Police weren't sure if this was related to the murders or not. Meanwhile, running out of options, detectives decided to share pictures of the killer's clothing to media the Nike tracksuit pants and Colorado boots. Crime Stoppers aired a commercial featuring the clothing with the hope of someone recognising the items. The killer's clothes also featured on nightly news programs and in newspapers. A woman quickly phoned the cops and told them that her ex-boyfriend used to wear those kind of pants and boots all the time, but after the murders, he had stopped wearing them. When she quizzed her ex-boyfriend about the boots and pants, he became agitated. 
She also told police that he kept newspaper clippings about the murders and constantly talked about them. Her ex-boyfriend also asked her several times what she would do if he'd killed somebody and told her he had done something bad but never explained what he meant. I can see why he became an ex-boyfriend. Well, this was the lead detectives were looking for, Tara. The name of the caller's ex-boyfriend was Mark Van Crevel. Other than the missing clothes, police needed more evidence to arrest him. Mark Van Crevel was put under constant police surveillance. They could not take any chances because if he was in fact the killer, he might strike again. Detectives observed Mark hanging out with his mates, including his BFFFF, Keith Schreiber, already known to detectives as he was a suspect in the murder of David O'Hearn. In fact, Keith lived with Mark Van Crevel in the same street as David O'Hearn. Police had met Mark before when looking for Keith. It was Mark who would answer the door of their flat. Mark Van Crevel was actually asked to come down to the cop shop and sign an alibi witness statement for Keith at that time. The statement had been filed away as per police procedure. After locating the statement, it was one clever detective's idea to check it for fingerprints. The A4 piece of paper was dipped in an anhydrant chemical. The liquid reacts with the amino acids in the fingerprints on the paper. After the paper is dried, fingerprints are shown with a purple stain. Three full latent fingerprints appeared and were later matched to prints found at the O'Hearn medicine as well as a murder scene of Frank Arkell. But detectives wanted more before they arrested Mark Van Crevel. As he was still under surveillance, cops followed him until he discarded an empty bottle of Coca-Cola he'd drunk. Once he was out of sight, they retrieved the bottle and lifted fingerprints off it. All prints were a match off the witness statement and more importantly, Tara, the prints from both murder scenes. Police were ready to arrest Mark Van Crevel for the murders of David O'Hearn and Frank Arkell. But Mark, well, he had other plans. The next day, Mark visited his Taekwondo instructor, Rodney Day, who he called Sensei. Mark told his Sensei, I want to tell you something, but if I tell you, will I be expelled from training? Rodney replied, Oh, Mark, things aren't ever that grim. Depends on what you've done, I suppose. Rodney probably thought he'd got done for doing graffiti. Yeah, or shoplifting some lollies. Or tipping cows. Rodney was not at all prepared for what Mark said next. You know those murders in the paper? I'd done them. Rodney Day immediately rang another instructor to take his class for him. He told Mark to come with him for a drive to discuss it more. When they got in the car, Mark told Rodney that he didn't want to go to the police. Instead, Rodney took Mark to a coffee shop he knew was close to a police station and in a heated discussion tried to convince him to turn himself in. Eventually, Mark ceded to the authority of his sensei and agreed to surrender to police. Mark asked Rodney to visit his flat first as he wanted his sensei to take possession of a knife and a samurai sword that he owned. This worried Rodney, but he reluctantly agreed. Mark went into his flat, Rodney opened the trunk to his car and walked some distance away. When Mark came out and saw Rodney standing, well, quite a long way away from the car, he said to him, I'm not going to hurt ya. Wise sensei Rodney told him, it might not be that way, Mark, but put them in the trunk and shut it. At Wollongong Police Station, Rodney asked a young female constable if he could speak to someone in charge. When she asked him what it was regarding, Rodney told her, The young man with me, his name is Mark, and he's admitted to two murders. Mark Van Crevel was immediately arrested. When asked by detectives, what information do you have about the death of David O'Hearn? Mark replied, Oh, I don't know much anything about David himself, but uh, I murdered him. I don't know much about him. I didn't know him as a person. I had in my mind that I wanted to kill someone that day. I was really angry that day. I went to David O'Hearn's house at about six o'clock at night. I hit him ten plus times with a fancy glass bottle. Then I got a sharp knife and cut his head off and cut through his stomach and cut his hand off and wrote all the signs on the wall. I'm not satanic, but in satanic terms, the inverted cross is like Jesus hanging upside down in hell. Whoa. I know. Also, I'm not satanic, but if I was, this is what that means. Mark told detectives that after this he washed all the blood off his hands and face because he was covered in it 
and then he calmly walked out. When asked if there was any reason why he did it, Mark answered, Why I killed David O'Hearn? No, not really. I mean, I was angry, but no particular reason, no. Just two weeks before surrendering to police, Mark Van Crevel had changed his name by depot to Mark Marla Valera. Now, because he would rather people call him that, and we think he's a complete dickhole, we're not going to call him that. You alright with that, Tara? Yeah, fair enough. Next, Mark Van Crevel was quizzed about the murder of Frank Arkell. Detectives started by asking him if he knew Frank prior to his murder. Mark said, I knew of him. I knew he was a convicted pedophile. He wasn't. I had in my mind I wanted to kill him. Uh, I just didn't like him. It wasn't for me to take it into my own hands, but I felt someone should have killed him. I pretended I was gay and called him up and I said, My name's John. I was wondering if I could come to your house. He said, Yeah, sure, come down, blah, 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 blah. I walked down to his house and he thought, um, I liked him. I went into his room in the back. He turned his back to me. I rammed him into the wall. He fell to the ground. I gave him a few hard boots. When the detectives asked what happened next, Mark replied, What? What did I grab next? Oh, um, fucking hell. Pardon my language. I grabbed the cord and I put it around his neck. It was attached to a lamp and I thrusted it down like that. Mark said he hit Arkell 40 plus times. He had blood all over his face and boots and was swearing at himself of getting blood all over his precious Nike pants. Oh, not his good Nike pants. Mark then went on to describe Frank's attempts to protect himself by crawling away on the floor. When asked what prompted him to turn himself in, Mark replied, Oh, I felt it's the right thing to do and I have to get this shit off my chest. Search warrants were executed at several houses where Mark was known to stay. At his father's place, they found Frank Arkell's tracksuit pants. At a hostel where Mark had been staying, they found a gold chain belonging to David O'Hearn. Also found was a book, The A to Z of Serial Killers. Not really a significant find in itself. I mean, we all have a few of those in our bookshelf, don't we? What was more important was what Mark had handwritten inside it. Scrolled on the first page was, Who will be my number three? David John O'Hearn, Frank Arkell, the first, who else? One is the best. You will always remember your first, who's next? My list, special numbers are only thought of. The possibilities are endless, including... Yes, well, underneath (laughs) this brilliantly constructed sentence was a list of names. A list of people Mark Van Crevel wanted dead. The list was long, over 40 names, separated into categories that included some satanic faggot, some horny faggot, some sexy prostitute, male or female. The list ends, not anyone in particular. After that it reads, I'll kill anyone who gets in my way. Now be sure to listen next week for part two of the Van Crevel evil. Now just because Mark Van Crevel has been arrested doesn't mean that the murders have stopped. I have a question for you, Tara. Yep. What is Aussie As? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I would. Aussie Jordan Shanks is the producer and star of the Friendly Geordie's YouTube channel, which has 395,000 followers and has had more than 50 million views. Geordie, a former model who studied international politics, is not backward in coming forward with his opinions about Australia's political climate. In September last year, he was sued for defamation for some rather unflattering words he used to describe businessman-turned-politician Clive Palmer. These included Fatty McFuckhead, Dense Humpty Dumpty, a nutty turd who pretends to be Australian and saying Clive Palmer was considered a walking meme. Well, he's not wrong. (laughs) The lawsuit (laughs) stated that this has caused Clivey extreme embarrassment and damage to professional, personal and political reputation. To have the lawsuit dropped, 65-year-old Clivey wants Geordie to make another video where he makes amends. He wants him to delete the original video from all platforms and promise to never make another video about him again. Clivey's legal team aimed to take this to the Supreme Court where they are hoping to sue friendly Geordies for half a million bucks. Geordie's response was probably... 
probably not what Clivey's legal team was expecting. He uploaded a video where he said, I now know how one of those deadbeat dads on Maury Povich feels when he announces they're not the father. Very happy. You see, in Clive's attempt to pervert the law, he made one tiny miscalculation, and that is, I'm a millennial. Going bankrupt <laughs> doesn't scare me. Oh. I have as many assets as seats that you have in Parliament. None. Well, that's right, Tara. Nob and Clivey spent $83 million in the last federal election and didn't win a single seat in Parliament. Oh, that's not much bang for your buck, is it? Not only did Geordie refuse to back down... He also started selling Clive Palmer is a fatty McFuckhead t-shirts that contain a less than attractive caricature of Clivey on them on his website. Now, Barney, you know I'm not a big fan of fat jokes personally. I was a chubby kid and the complete lack of imagination other kids used when choosing words to bully me was quite frustrating. But I thought the spirit of this story was too entertaining not to talk about. Oh, absolutely. It's also a great example of the Streisand effect. Have you heard of that one before? Is that when you're so rich you can build an entire shopping mall in the basement of your mansion? No, although that is a fact about her. She even has a frozen yogurt shop down there. Froget. Froyo. The Streisand effect is a social phenomenon that happens when an attempt to remove or censor information has the exact opposite effect and actually further publicises it, mostly online. It is, of course, named after Barbara Streisand, whose 2003 attempt to conceal photos of her Malibu mansion inadvertently drew further attention to it, as did the fact she built an entire shopping mall in her basement. So there you go, that's a thing you know now. Maybe she's just a big Dawn of the Dead fan. Oh, yeah, I bet her and James Brolin do all kinds of shopping centre-centric sexy cosplay down there. Well, this brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews. So thank you to Jen Staggs from the USA, Barkley Dweller from Australia, and Maria Bajee from the United States. Thank you very much. And we'd also like to thank our Facebook moderating team. We love our patrons, Tara, and in an attempt to show them how much we do, we're holding monthly giveaways. February's lucky winner of the Bloody Murder Tara Touch My Muscles t-shirt was Nellie Lerman. Congratulations, Nellie. Congratulations, Nellie, and happy birthday too. This month, we have a special prize, Tara. We're giving away some Femme Studio wireless earbuds. Whoa! With its wireless design and minimalistic charging case, Fem is the perfect match for any adventure. They are splash, rain and sweat proof and they hold a total of 20 hours playtime, six hours in a single charge. You can use them in the shower. That's a lot of murders. Fem also introduces a four microphone system and new touch controls for an enhanced sound quality experience. It also features the latest Bluetooth 5.0 technology compatible with iOS and Android and up to 10 metres of range. For Bloody Murder listeners, Studio are offering free worldwide shipping and 15% off with the code BLOODYMURDER15 at checkout. Visit studio.com for details. Now, for a chance to win a pair of the fabulous Studio FM wireless earbuds, just join our Bloody Murder Patreon for a level above $5. Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program, so thank you to... Michelle Brown. Jason Abercrombie. Lillian. And Charlie McCall. Now, because I was too sick to record last week, um, we didn't get our patron episode for March out. So we're going to make sure that we get you at least two episodes in April, That's our right. beautiful patrons. Now, if you'd like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink because we're really thirsty, um, via video link up, we'll have a drink together, won't we? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, it'd have to be. There's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. You can follow us through our Facebook page or join our awesome Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And on Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, Bloody Murder Podcast, for news, galleries, more episodes and links to our threadless merchandise. Thanks for sticking around and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. 
and keep kicking against the pricks. And wash your hands. Oh, God, definitely wash your hands and stay home. Yeah, wash your bum. Don't, yeah, don't go to infection parties. They're overrated. And I didn't even need to go to one to get this cold, and it's been terrible. You can get horribly sick at home. Yeah, I'm horribly <laughs> sick of you. Sick of you at home. Oh, I'm horribly sick of the sound of my voice. I'm still, it still sounds so snotty. Yeah. Hey, you know what's interesting about this, this day and age, this predicament that we're all in? What's that, Tara? Well, it would be a great time to be put under house arrest because no one would ever know that it had happened. Well, that's true. That's, yeah, a, that's, a, that's, a, that, that's a good point you make there. Just stay at home with your ankle bracelet on. Yeah. Bob's your uncle. No one will suspect a thing. Jack and Elizabeth named the boy Mark. To mark the day, they named him Mark. <laughs> the right, following... I don't know. No. Maybe yeah, <laughs> um, had, had a big scratch on his face. Look at that mark. Oh, God. Oh, I don't know. Oh, God, they're a, dad jokes. They're I terrible. I was going to say, is this a dad joke podcast? What the fuck, man? I'm a dad. I'm allowed to do that. I know, but like doing it in a public forum seems foolish. Well, this is my only public forum I can do these days. <laughs> yeah, it's a very private I, public forum. I can't stand on my roof wanking anymore, or can I? Actually, that would still like meet the requirements, as long as there's not someone doing it next to you as well. <laughs> someone. What about a, the guy? What from, about the guy across the road? Is that all right? Well, as long as he's a meter and a half away, it's fine. Or if it's someone from your own household, which is just giving me terrible, terrible images right now. Yeah, I've got to bail out of this conversation. I think that's wise. <laughs> Under their tutelage, Mark was able to... The dog just shook it out. I think Shook, shake it up. <laughs> she just did. Okay, she wants... She de- she, yep, she, shake. She's tired of my shit. i got to let her out. Yeah? I'm tired of your shit too. Let me out. That's a nice view of your elbow. It's my armpit, motherfucker. Oh, Woo! right. Yeah. There's a spider crawled under it. Oh, fuck off. Dickhole. Dickhole. My folks think you're a dickhole. Well, my folks think you're a dickhole. <laughs> well, they're both right, aren't they? They're both right. <laughs> Due to constant disciplinary disputes, Keith... Keith, Keith is coming to kill you. Keithy! Cut yourself shaving there, Keithy. Oh, you had yourself a bit of a mischief. Keith was eventually... Keith was eventually eventually... Hey... Hey, Keith, what have, Keith, ah, I can't say Keith. Yeah. Keith. That's why you have to say all the Keiths. Though later he did secure employment as a dishwasher at Planet Holly, fuck. At A. I know. Get it right. No, fuck you. Look at my armpit. Uh, Armpit vision. Look alive, Sarah Byrne. I don't pay you to gold brick. You don't pay me at all, fucko. (laughs) Um... Which he shared with his BFF, which he shared, which he shared with his BFFF, Keith Schroeder, Ricky Schroeder, which he shared with his. I think he goes by the name of Rick, Rick, Rick Schroeder now. Schroeder. Rick Schroeder. I think he was in Law and Order for a while. Yeah, he was. He was in Law and Order for a while. And he was just Rick, wasn't he? Rick, yeah, yeah. He got rid of the whole Ricky thing when he turned 65. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, nice. Thought, Which is the opposite of Rick Springfield. He now goes by the name of Ricky Springfield. Oh, okay. He did a reverse Schroeder. Yeah. <laughs> um, both his parents remarried, but he was not welcomed by either of their new partners, possibly because he was, well, kind of stupid and a bit of a loser. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit harsh. You wrote it, cunt. Yeah, I know, but you won't be when you find out what he does. Oh, uh, I know that. But before then, there'll be all these reviews. Tara's so snobby. Oh, oh she judges poor everyone. Poor Keefe. He's just a child uh, and his mum and dad left. Yeah. He's just a little boy. He's the only person whose parents... Leave him alone. He's a, Don't call him a loser. He's the only person in the world whose parents ever broke up. Cut him some slack, you judgy, yeah, judgy that's bitch. Right. He just likes cannibal corpse. Todd and Coldplay <laughs> and Rick, Rick, Ricky Martin. Coldplay corpse. Oh, dear God. I guess it's a relief of sorts that the mutilation, the dog. 
I'm just going to see what's up with her. I'm just going to keep everything yeah, right. going. It's probably the mailman, right? The postman always rings twice my ass. He didn't bother to knock once because he got scared by the dog barking. <laughs> yeah, right. He just ran away. Yeah, he did. He just threw it on the thing and ran away. When quizzed about the sketches they found in his room, Keith explained that those were just copied from CD covers of his favourite band, Miami Sound Machine. <laughs> The dog just stuck her nose in my mouth. It was very refreshing. <laughs> Is that some kind of human dog sex thing or no, something? No, no. I was giving her pats and my mouth happened to be open, so she just went for it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's what happens now. She's lying on the bed. She thinks this is all about her because, you know, she can't hear you. So she just assumes I'm talking to her when I'm doing well, this. Well, she's not wrong. No, I know. I'm going to tell her all about some murders, which is not normally what we talk about. But, hey. Oh, you're a bit excited. Oh, she's biting the air now. lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.